Uh, welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm John Fonte, a senior fellow and director of the Center for American Common Culture. Hudson promotes American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. We were founded in 1961 by strategist Herman Kahn. Hudson challenges conventional thinking and helps manage strategic transitions to the future through disciplinary studies in defense, international relations, economics, healthcare, technology, culture, and law. We're delighted to host British journalist, author, and think tanker David Goodhart. He is currently the head of the demography unit at the Policy Exchange Think Tank. He's the founder and former editor of Prospect Magazine and former director of a center-left uh, think tank, Demos. His previous book, The British Dream, Successes and Failures of Postwar Immigration, was a runner-up for the Orwell Prize. Now, David has written a powerful, incisive new book, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt in the Future of Politics. It's here. You can, of course, get it on Amazon, elsewhere. Uh, Britain, like the United States, is culturally divided. It's a culturally divided nation. And our author probes this division with considerable skill. He presents a sustained, serious, and cogent argument. It's backed up with massive survey data on the crucial issues of Brexit, immigration, assimilation, globalization, and national identity. Now, he takes on a lot of social forces and theories that are not used to being criticized. Fred Siegel, writing in the City Journal, recently said he's a man of considerable courage. Uh, my own review of this book will appear in National Review soon. I'll introduce my Hudson colleague, Walter Russell Mead, uh, who will have an exchange with David after uh, David's presentation. Now, there's little doubt, I think, that the road to somewhere will have a significant, and I believe, positive impact on the policy debate in the English-speaking world. David, why don't you take it away? Thank you very much. Thanks, John, for that uh, generous introduction. Um, let me just check. I've, I've only just discovered PowerPoints. Everyone else seems to be giving them up. But uh, um, I've, uh, I've just uh, discovered their value. There we go. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as John said, uh, I've written this book about the value divides in British society, although I think what I talk about has a bearing on pretty well all developed democracies, uh, including, obviously, the United States. Um, but uh, the value divides um, in Britain have had a, a particularly destabilizing effect on our politics, I argue, <coughs> in the book, uh, a destabilizing effect that led to the very unexpected vote to leave the European Union. Um, the fact, the very fact that it was such a shock to the, the, the whole political class, really, um, is, is testament in some ways to the different bubbles that uh, the, the people live in, in in our country, as indeed uh, in most developed democracies. Um, I mean, you, you'll, be, you'll be very familiar. Since Brexit, since Trump, since the rise of populist parties in Europe, there's been a lot of analysis in this area, a lot of it like my own analysis, focusing on, uh, on divide, often educational and value divides. Um, so you know, some, some of what I say will be quite familiar to you, though I, I hope you will find um, some distinctive lines of argument in it. Um, and I'll touch on the very important question of why is all this happening now? Because some of these, some of these value divides and educational divides have, after all, been with us for, for really 
for, for many generations. Why, why are we experiencing this eruption now? And of course, the very important point, what do we do about it? Uh, how, do we, how do we move on? How do we create new, new settlements, new coalitions in our politics? Um, but let, let, let me just give you a kind of thumbnail sketch of the, um, of the value divides that I'm talking about, as I say, particularly in the UK, but with a, with a broader application, I hope. Um, I talk in the book about the distinction between what I call the people from anywhere. That is, by the way, 20-25% of the population I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about metropolitan elites. When we talk about elites, we normally mean, what, 3-5% of the population. I'm talking really about a very, very big group, and a group that's become a lot bigger in recent years. They tend to be highly educated. They tend to be mobile. The combination of the two is perhaps a particularly British thing because of our overwhelmingly residential universities, and also because of the influence of London in our system, this hugely overmighty system, city rather, that, that sucks in so many people, particularly in professional and upper professional careers. Um, so you have, as I say, this educated mobile group that's grown very rapidly in recent times, and they tend to value, we tend to value openness, autonomy, comfortable broadly with, with social change, social fluidity, adaptive. Um, and they tend to have, again, partly because of the mobility, they tend to have relatively weak attachments to, to place and in, and in particular to, to group. Um, and this, of course, is contrasted with the, the other large group, the other large value block in our society I call the somewheres, people who, as the term suggests, are more, are more rooted, tend to be less well-educated, tend to value familiarity, security, but also tend to have much stronger group attachments to nation, ethnicity, place, their own people, as it were. Um, and um, the, um, there's, a parallel, there's a parallel binary concept that, uh, that I think f helps to flesh out my anywhere-somewhere distinction, um, which actually comes from the American sociologist Talker Parsons. Um, I've mentioned his name in a few places in the last few days, and hardly anyone seems to have heard of Talker Parsons any longer. Uh, I think possibly with good reason. I remember when I was at university, the people studying sociology would grimace at the mention of his name. He, he did produce these very dull sort of chemistry textbooks of functionalist sociology. But he did come up with one very useful uh, binary when thinking about human identity. He talked about, he talked about a spectrum between achieved, achieved and ascribed identities. Anywhere people, I think, have, have identities that are primarily achieved identities, meaning their sense of themselves comes from what they have achieved in life. They passed exams when they were young, they went to good universities, they have more or less successful professional careers. That means that your sense of yourself is kind of relatively protected, it's relatively secure, and therefore your identity is kind of portable. You can fit in anywhere without feeling discomforted. If, on the other hand, your identity is primarily an ascribed identity, it's you know, like I'm white, male, British, um, if you come from a certain place, you belong to a certain group, then your identity is much more easily disturbed and discomforted by rapid social change or large-scale immigration or whatever. Um, and I think this is a very important distinction. Indeed, the, the two key distinctions when talking about the new instability in our politics, the two key distinctions between anywheres and somewheres is, I think, the ability to serve social change 
easily on the part of anywheres, less easily on the part of somewheres, and attachment to group, weak on the part of anywheres, much stronger on the part of somewheres. Um, now, all this may sound just a little bit too simplistic and binary, and, and, and in, some regard, in, in some respects it is. I mean, it's you know, quite useful when you have a thesis to be able to, to boil it down to, to something simple. Um, but there is, uh, you know, as authors tiresomely say, if you read my book, you will find plenty of light and shade. Um, and there is, you know, there is a huge variety of different anywhere types. There's a huge variety of different somewhere types. Both are on a kind of spectrum. So you have more extreme anywheres I call global villages. Three, five percent of the population, the kind of people who in Britain would say put a European or a global identity before a national one. Small but eccentric group. Um, and um, at the bottom end of somewheres, you have you know, genuine authorit hard authoritarians and xenophobes uh, who really uh, are, in, are in a kind of war against much of the, the modern world. Um, uh, I also talk, by the way, of, of, a, of a very large in-betweener group. About 25% of the population I classify as, as neither kind of in the, in the broad somewhere camp nor in the broad anywhere camp. Um, two things I would emphasize about my schema. One is that I've invented the labels, but I really have not invented the value blocks. They are there. I, mean, I haven't done the work in, in, in the US. I've done the work, obviously, mainly focusing on Britain. But if you look at things like the British Social Attitude Surveys, if you look at a whole range of opinion and value surveys taken over the last uh, decade or two, and if you interrogate the, these, these surveys, you will come up with roughly the kinds of proportions. You can argue about the exact proportions that I've attributed to, to the anywheres and the somewheres and the, and the various subgroups. Um, they are fuzzy at the edges, uh, and, and obviously the, the, the whole value argument shifts over time, um, but they really are there in the data, as the academics like to say. Um, the other thing I would really strongly emphasize is that both of these value groups are entirely legitimate and at least in their mainstream variations, entirely decent. And, you know, and therein lies the, the tragedy of, of modern life and, of, and of modern politics in some ways, that they are, because they are, in certain respects, fundamentally opposed. Um, um, I want to, I'm actually now going to hop um, onto the third slide. Uh, I'll come back to the second one because uh, I think it actually works slightly better in this order. I want to now just briefly touch on the question of why now, I mentioned earlier. Why is this kind of eruption emerging now? I mean, a lot of you were thinking, well, you know, we've, we've always had these kinds of divisions. There have always been better educated, um, more mobile, more better-traveled people who have more, more experience of the world, are perhaps more open-minded, and people who live more pinched lives, who have a more, uh, more fear of the outsider and so on. Um, and that is true. I would say there are two very important reasons why this has emerged now as such a central issue in our politics. Uh, the first reason, which perhaps applies slightly less to the US, uh, but the first reason for the UK and much of Europe is this, that we have shifted in the last generation or so from a politics that was almost entirely dominated throughout the post-war period by a socioeconomic framework. The basic units of politics were social class, the arguments were about size of the state, levels of public spending, arguments about equality and inequality, and 
Those arguments have not completely gone away by any means. Indeed, some people argue that the last election, the surprise election just a few weeks ago in Britain, kind of takes us back to an old socioeconomic left-right two-party system. It does take us back to a two-party system, but I would argue very strongly, and perhaps we can talk about this later, um, the values analysis still works, uh, indeed works very well, uh, applied to, the, to that last election. But um, what's happened is that we've seen the emergence of what I would call socio-cultural politics, the politics of security and identity issues, which have kind of loomed much larger have to, to compete with, even eclipse to some extent, socio-economic politics uh, in, the last, in the last decade or so. Um, and and th this has happened partly in itself in response to the much greater openness of our economies and our cultures in the last 20 or 30 years with, with WTO, globalization with um, European Union integration in, in the UK and Europe, um, with you know, much more kind of external interference into the, into the bowels of our politics uh, from the outside and the, and the consequent feelings that people have of, of reductions in national sovereignty and a degree of powerlessness that follows from that. Um, so you've seen the, the rise of socio-cultural politics to eclipse socio-economic politics. You've also seen just a simple increase in the number of anywheres, uh, itself the product of the huge expansion of higher education, something that is obviously already, already you know, the massification of higher education. It's an old story in the US. Um, it's, a, it's a newer one in the UK. Indeed, the, the whole rise of socio-cultural politics, as I said, I think perhaps applies slightly less in the US because of the greater importance of race and religion in US politics over, well, over, over many centuries. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, but, but even so, I think here too, indeed, indeed you might say there's been almost a kind of reversal that, 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 the, that the populism here is almost a return, <coughs> return to social class politics in America, while we've been um, worrying more about issues to do with boundaries and ethnicity and so on um, in a way that was perhaps more familiar in the US. Um, anyway, um, Certainly, focusing on the UK, we have, we have, this socio-cultural politics has created these, has helped to magnify, bring to the fore the, the value divisions that I've been talking about, um, and has led to this, has led to this instability um, that, 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 that is the underlying cause, I would argue, of, um, of the surprise Brexit vote. Um, but just to go Back, yes, works. Um, the um, to, to, to kind of flesh out my value divide in terms of, 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 of politics. Um, what's been going on, I would argue, is that the uh, the anywhere um, the anywhere value group, uh, you know, large sort of incohate though it is, um, has come more and more to. Uh, dominate our politics and indeed our, our policies uh, over the last generation or so, applying a kind of, I mean, a, a, the loose political ideology I associate with anyways I call progressive individualism. It has a centre-left side, it has a centre-right side. Um, the value groups in general, by the way, overlap to some extent with class, but are separate from class. They aren't, they aren't the same thing, even though, I mean, a lot of somewheres would, would also self-define as working class and a lot of Anywheres are more affluent and would self-identify as middle class. There are also lots of middle class somewheres, 
uh, and there are some working class anyways, probably not very many, um, but it's, uh, it, it, they overlap, but they're distinct uh, categories, and people are, people's sort of actions derive, I think, as much, if not more now, from these, from these value inspirations as from more traditional socioeconomic social class positions. Um, so, um, uh, but, but one absolutely vital point I want to emphasise here is that, um, and what, one thing that I think has, has led to the disillusionment um, with politics, and indeed the kind of withdrawal from politics uh, of, of quite a large section of the, of the somewhere value block, um, is the, the failure of the anywheres to kind of to, to understand, I think to have sort of sufficient emotional intelligence almost to kind of understand the, uh, the, the, the somewhere values without caricaturing them as, as illiberal or xenophobic or whatever. I call the political ideology of somewheres decent populism. Some people would think that's a contradiction in terms. I don't think it is because the, the somewhere group has gone broadly gone along with, with what I would call the great liberalization of the last 40 years or so. If you look at British Social Attitude Surveys, and I'm sure it's the same here, you know, you, you, you just go back to the 1980s and uh, what now seems like the extraordinary reactionary views that, that people had about um, many aspects of everyday cultural life. Um, I mean, I think in Britain, in the mid-80s, something like 60% plus, 65% of the population thought that homosexuality was, was morally wrong. I think now 70, 75% support gay marriage. Uh, you've seen a huge liberalisation in attitudes to race, gender and sexuality in the UK and similar patterns, um, I think, here in the US. But the somewheres, as I say, have broadly gone along with that. Uh, they haven't necessarily led it. It's been a kind of anywhere-led movement. But uh, they are not liberals. They still, at least not in the eyes of, of anywheres, depends how you define liberalism, of course, um, so they still have much stronger national attachments. They're still much more strongly attached and indeed benefit from national social contracts in a way that, that anywheres often don't. Uh, they would, for example, be, uh, you know, broadly speaking, opposed to large-scale immigration, certainly in the UK and much of Europe. The story here may be a bit more complicated. Um, but opposed to large-scale immigration, not necessarily opposed to immigrants. There's this kind of liberal illusion people are often said to be, oh, such and such or such and such a party is anti-immigrant. They're not, sometimes they are, but rarely in my experience. People are anti-large-scale immigration because they think it doesn't benefit them economically or indeed culturally through the rapid social change, rapid change to neighborhoods that most people don't like. Um, and this is perhaps a change. This, this would have been different again some decades back. You know, you have had to go back to the 1960s, the 1970s. M you know, there, there were many much more bigoted attitudes then. The argument then was about sending people home. Now it's simply about reducing the rate of the inflow of people, which is rather, rather a different <coughs> proposition. Some ways also have, in some ways, a stronger attachment to kind of common social norms in our society. So they're more anxious about the integration of minorities, they're more anxious about um, welfare, free riding and so on. They will often have somewhat more traditional, not really old-fashioned views of the family, but a kind of a compromise, as it were, what one might, one, what one might call the kind of modified um, gender division of labour. So not going for the full whack kind of liberal 
egalitarian, androgynous model where you know, men and women are not only equal but essentially the same when it comes to family responsibilities and so on. Uh, but large majorities of, of, of people, large majorities of women in Britain want a reliable um, main breadwinner male when they have young children. They want to spend time bringing up children without having to work, and yet so much of our family policy has, has been actually about um, making it um, almost impossible for people to spend time with their families. Um, um, so I, I want to stress that balance, the sort of the essential decency of much, um, much somewhere thinking. And yet, and yet, um, the alienation of, of somewheres um, is, has been the defining factor in, the, uh, in, this, um, in this populist surge. And um, it is um, fundamentally to do, as I said, with the over-domination, the kind of, it's anywhere overreach, the over-domination of our culture and our society by anywhere priorities. I mean, you, you, you only have to go back 40 or 50 years, and a, and a country like Britain, you know, British common sense was somewhere common sense. Now it is overwhelmingly, at least in the public realm, it is overwhelmingly anywhere common sense. And you just have to you know, go through the main policy areas in, in British life. Uh, you could you know, start with the economy. Uh, we, we, we call it the knowledge economy. I mean, the very phrase tells you a lot about how things have changed in the economy. This is an economy that works for highly, highly educated, highly qualified people. It works best for them, anyway. And meanwhile, we've seen the emergence of this kind of hourglass labor market a lot of the kind of middling jobs that, that gave somewhere status and protection have, have, have disappeared, I mean, have gone to other countries or have been automated away. And uh, this is, a, I think, a, one of the absolutely fundamental causes of, I mean, I, I broadly support a more cultural and economic analysis of, um, of these factors that I'm talking about. I think culture sort of trumps economics, but actually much of the time the two things are so intertwined I mean, what, what we're talking about in the economic theory is essentially the reduced, the huge reduction in the status of non-graduate employment in the last two or three decades. Huge reduction in the, in the status of non-graduate employment. Um, and there were those, it's the disappearance, somebody said this to me since I've written the book, I met someone who used to be a, uh, you know, we tend to perhaps over-romanticize the kind of, um, um, the skilled manual jobs that, that, that we associated with uh, large manufacturing enterprises. Uh, but somebody who did one of those jobs uh, until a few years ago said to me something that I found very enlightening. He said, the thing about the kind of job that I used to do is that uh, you didn't need a huge amount of cognitive ability to do it well. What you did need was a lot of experience. So no, you know, somebody couldn't just walk in off the street from Harvard or MIT and do my job anything like as well as I could do it. Um, and that, that sense that ex, you know, experience gave you a kind of status protection, so much of that has gone um, in, the, in the labor market, I think. So, so much so that I think I calculated the other day, I mean, it's very rough, back of the envelope calculation, about 80, 85% of jobs in the UK now require either a university degree to do or can be done after half an hour's training. Um, and what this is all about, too, then the other absolutely central fact here is the kind of the rise and rise of cognitive ability as the kind of gold standard of 
social esteem in our societies. Um, this is you know, this is something that you know there has been a, a long uh, argument about, although actually never as central, I think, to the political debate as it should have been. Going back to Michael Young's famous book at the end of the 1950s, The Rise of the Meritocracy, the, 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 the critique of a society um, run by um, non-paternalistic, um, uh, self-confident cognitive elites, elites who think they owe nothing to non-elites. Um, you know, this is the kind of, this is the opposite of the paternalistic Lord Grantham, if any of you watched Downton Abbey. Um, and um, um, this is, of course, one of the main themes of uh, Charles Murray's famous book, uh, The Bell Curve. Uh, disappeared, obviously, under a cloud of controversy over, over race and IQ. But actually, most of the book is about um, the issue of uh, the problem of cognitive elites kind of loosening themselves from, from the rest of society. So, so you've got the, the economy, completely anywhere dominated economy. You've got education policy, certainly in Britain, and I think largely in the US too. A huge focus on the expansion of higher education. Higher education is by definition a, a kind of anywhere domain. It's, a, it's an area that anywheres understand. All their children go to good universities. Um, it's uh, Meanwhile, certainly in the UK, we've had the continuing neglect of technical and vocational education. Um, and um, uh, you know, the options for the, you know, the post-school options for the school leaver in Britain anyway, all of, the, all of the signposts, indeed all of the public subsidy still, or at least a lot of the public subsidy, is pushing people into the university, into the higher education route, whether it suits them or not. And the other paths remain very much sort of Cinderella status. Um, we've sim we, know, we have simply had a huge opening of our economies and our societies, as I mentioned earlier, which people are partly reacting against. And the promises that were made, I mean, the great sort of uh, new Democrat, new Labour promise of the, of the 80s and the 90s associated with Clinton and Robert Reich in the US, with Tony Blair in Britain, was, you know, they, somewheres were told, you, you roll with globalization and all will be fine. We'll, we'll turn you all into software engineers. You know, we'll retrain you. And this promise was never fulfilled. I think it's one of the absolute sort of central um, issues here, and you take take something like freedom of movement in Europe. One of the one of the biggest reasons for Britain voting unexpectedly for Brexit. And if you think of how differently it affects my two blocks. If you're anywhere, you're a lawyer living in North London. You work for a city law firm. They have offices in Berlin, Amsterdam, Madrid. You go and work in one of those offices without any let or hindrance, without any bureaucratic bother of having a work permit. It's it's, it's wonderful. It's easy. Uh, it enhances your life. You don't face a huge amount of competition coming the other way. If you work in the food production sector, it really is a very, very different story. But it's the biggest manufacturing sector in Britain. It employs 400,000 people. 120,000 of those people come from Eastern and Central Europe just since 2004. Quite extraordinary change. So it won't necessarily be in your free, free movement, won't necessarily be in your interest. You don't have to dislike the, the Pole or the Slovakian who you work alongside but they are, will probably be a factor you know, holding down your wages. There will be competition for social housing, for scarce public services, and so on. This is not something that has enhanced your life. And you're very unlikely to have the, the aptitude or, or the desire to go and work in a fish finger factory in Slovakia. I mean, why would you? Um, um, family policy, another area. I touched on that uh, previously. I think family policy almost more than any other area of policy, has been dominated by the interests of 
what one might call upper professional couples, upper professional women, uh, the huge stress on kind of minimizing the impact of motherhood on professional female careers, completely legitimate cause. You know, I'm, I'm in favor of more women on boards and lots of very moderate and average men who would, you know, ought to be replaced by brighter, dynamic women. No question about that. But uh, meanwhile, with all the focus in that area, we have completely neglected the fact that the working class family is disintegrating, both in the UK and I think in parts of the US too. We have very little, in fact in Britain, we have no fiscal support for the family. I think you do uh, have some arrangements here. So pe people bringing up children together are not allowed to share their tax allowances, a pretty fundamental thing, most European countries have it. Um, for, for various historical reasons, we don't. And even the Conservative Party is not about to introduce it. They're far more, they spend far more time and effort talking about women on boards than they do about helping you know, middle, middle and lower income families stay together. Um, it seems to be a great, a great gap. And I think, as I said, there's, it, it's, this, is a, this is a potentially very popular policy, making, making it easier for, to, to enhance family life. Um, the kind of the, the, the cultural bias against domesticity and the cultural bias against the private realm has, has really, was one of the things I kind of learned most about actually writing this book, uh, and it really surprised me and slightly shocked me. Um, so sort of just how far we've gone. And a kind of curious footnote to this, by the way, is that uh, I asked a, an intern at my think tank in London to just check on how many European Union leaders were childless. And it turns out it's almost half. Um, indeed, I think we've got one more with, um, with uh, Leo in Ireland, uh, the new Prime Minister of Ireland, uh, who is gay and I think childless. Um, we now have 14 out of 30, I think, I think he included Norway and Switzerland, 14 out of 30 European Union leaders do not have children. Now, in some cases, that will be out of misfortune rather than choice, and it's partly a testament to just the, the, you know, the enormous pressures of modern politics, but I think it does sort of, it shows how, um, or it's kind of one of the reasons, I think, why the private realm has, 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 been, um, has been sort of culturally downgraded in our societies, I think, and, and behind that lie, I think, so many of our social problems. I mean, it's not the only cause, but something like the social care crisis in Britain was one of the central issues in the last election. Uh, it's because of the, the, the kind of weakening of family obligation. The housing crisis is partly because of so, so many new households are created when families break up. Um, one of the arguments for, I think it's a false argument actually, one of the arguments people often make for large-scale immigration is that, well, our populations are shrinking, we need more people. Well, why are they shrinking? Because we're having so few children. Why are we having so few children? Because we don't provide the incentive. We make it so hard for families to stay together and, and nurture. Um, the technocratic state. So just a quick couple more points, and then um, and then a brief reflections on what we do about all this, and, and then and then um, let's let's have a discussion. Um, uh, issues of social mobility. We can perhaps perhaps talk about this more later. I mean, this is kind of re related to the it's related to the cognitive ability point, but so social mobility has come to be seen, at least in the UK, as such a kind of big leap thing. The, the way that the kind of the, the social mobility story, the way it's kind of romanticised and talked about, uh, uh, is often by people who have made the big leap. They've gone from um, from the uh, the council estate, the, the what do you call them here, the projects, uh, the, the, the council estate to the elite university to the upper professional career, 
Um, and, you know, by definition, you know, only relatively small numbers of people can do that. And if, you know, if you have a kind of, if you have an image of social mobility that is so all or nothing, it's kind of depressing to the vast majority of people who can't make that huge leap. Uh, you know, there used to be kind of more opportunity for sort of smaller hierarchical pro progressions that uh, I think we neglected our peril. Um, and certainly in the UK, the whole idea of joining the kind of uh, the, the anywhere the anywhere class uh, is about leaving. It's about leaving your your hometown essentially. Again, this is partly because of the the overwhelming domination of residential universities. But you, you, you have to leave in order to thrive. And I think that's such a sad thing. I mean, apart from being as lots of people don't want to leave. You know, they, they like where they come from. <laughs> that's where they have their friends. It's where they get their free childcare from. Um, and there was a, I thought, absolutely awful speech given by the British Education Secretary, Justin Greening, uh, just a, a few weeks ago to the Social Mobility Commission in Britain, and she talked about, she comes from a town called Rotherham in South Yorkshire, a former steel town, and she talked about how she used to dream when she was growing up in Rotherham of owning her own house, having a decent job, having a challenging career, and I realised I couldn't have any of those things in Rotherham. Rotherham is not a one-horse town, ladies and gentlemen, it's a town of 120,000 people. The idea that you can't live a kind of achieved life in a town of 120,000 people is a very depressing fact about British society, or the fact that the Secretary of State for Education thinks that, and thinks that it's all that it's sort of fine to talk in that way, I thought was very, very depressing. Uh, anyway, let me let me um, wind up. I, you you might be thinking, well, uh, you know, okay, the anywheres are are, are are pretty dominant, but somewhere surely have some say in in what's going on, and it's true. Um, the somewhere voice is not completely silent. The two largest selling newspapers in Britain, the Daily Mail and the Sun, probably reflect a more somewhere than anywhere worldview. Um, the, uh, there are a few little kind of niches in the policy spectrum where I think one could say uh, there is you know, somewhere influence has played an important role. I mean, the fact that our prisons are overflowing probably reflects the rather more draconian attitude to criminal justice on the part of somewheres. We introduced welfare caps. Um, uh, the coalition government in 2011, I think, introduced welfare caps. The, the, the fact that governments have been trying and not succeeding on the whole to bring down levels of immigration is clearly because somewheres have been telling pollsters continuously for, for a couple of decades that they think immigration is too high or much too high. Um, so that they have some, but I would say the, you know, the overwhelming domination of our, of our culture, society, politics, policy is, is in anywhere one. I, th I hope I've made that point. So what do we do about this? Um, what is the what? What are the kind of what are the grounds for a? You know, we've had this we've had this unexpected backlash of the somewheres. The somewheres, as I said, stopped voting. The reason why people were so surprised by the Brexit vote is because three million people voted in the Brexit referendum who had not voted in general elections for the pre preceding four or five general elections. So they, it sort of took the pollsters by surprise. Um, but they, didn't, they hadn't been voting in general elections because they said, with some legitimacy, you're all the same. You know, the, the political parties all reflect the kind of double liberalism, what I call the double liberalism that emerged in the 80s and the 90s when, when the centre-left accepted the Reagan-Thatcher, broadly accepted the Reagan-Thatcher reforms in economics. You had, the kind of, you, had a, you had a new 
a new kind of anywhere consensus on liberal economics, along with a, a new, you know, the, the, you know, the argument, the kind of the, the right one, the economic argument, the left one, the cultural argument. And I think that 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 has been true, I mean, up until now, anyway, um, to some extent. Um, so we, you know, a lot of any, a lot of somewheres were saying, you know, if you went and canvassed. Uh, in election time, they say, well, what's the point of voting? You're all the same. And the referendum offered an opportunity to, to break that and say, you know, so a lot of it, I think, was a kind of domestic, it was a domestic argument uh, that, that took this, um, took this rather, the rather dramatic form of, of us now leaving the European Union. Obviously, the European Union itself is, is a kind of ultra-anywhere institution in many ways in, its, in the way that it, um, this, this, we can perhaps talk about this, Later, in the way that it sort of sets its face against even moderate nationalism, the fact that it's illegal to discriminate—it's you know, it's illegal to discriminate in favour of your own national citizens in the European Union, thanks to freedom of movement. You—you uh, you cannot discriminate. You, you know, you have to provide exactly the same services, exactly the same access to labour markets, and so on, for somebody from Spain as to as to your own citizens. Um, but, but. Just, just a couple of thoughts on, on the new settlement. I mean, I think essentially politics since Brexit in Britain has been a kind of argument between, between the kind of more militant anywheres uh, who say, you know, we are, we are the civilised people, they're the barbarians, we mustn't give an inch, um, um, you know, this is, this, is, this is a sort of disaster and um, we must dig in. And the people who I'm very much on the, on the side of what I would call the admonished anywheres, the people who are saying actually, we got this wrong. We haven't been listening enough to people. Um, and now we're experiencing this, um, this, 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 this backlash. You know, people have lashed out, um, uh, and, and we're now having to sort out the, our, our withdrawal from the EU. And we've got to listen to people. We've got to somehow build the somewhere voice um, more strongly into our politics. I think one of the ways we could do that is compulsory voting. At the moment, you know, politics is so focused on on you know, small number of constituencies, small number of states or, or districts in states, or indeed on those groups that, that overwhelmingly vote in large numbers, like older people. Uh, if we had compulsory voting, I think it might, it might help that. Um, I think one of the crucial things here is the way in which kind of arguments about, about equality, you know, racial, gender, sexuality, equality, um, have become sort of separate and seen in opposition to strong group attachments. And I think it's, I think it's possible to have both, um, and indeed necessary to have both. I mean, you know, human beings remain, remain group creatures. Um, you know, everybody knows that they, there are certain groups that they feel more comfortable amongst people like themselves, whether it's to do with their educational level or their background or their ethnicity. People who they share a kind of common set of of interests and experiences with. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think, you know, anywhere liberalism has often made people feel guilty about feeling, feeling comfortable amongst certain kinds of people. But equally, that doesn't have to mean that you dislike other people. Um, and I think we've sort of got, we've got that whole argument out of kilter and it's become sort of too, you know, this, it's become too divided. It's become too associated with the two different value groups. And I think we need to bring them together. And that's actually why... I mean, ethnic minorities, uh, particularly in Britain, I think, are one of the um, one of the potential sort of bridges, as it were, between between anywhere and somewhere value groups, because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a kind of new, a new settlement. We're looking for kind of bridge issues, and in this case, bridge groups. Because so in in the UK, 
uh, ethnic minorities tend to be pretty socially conservative. They're often more religious than the, than the white majority. Uh, they often have much stronger family connections. They're often just sort of, you know, physically where they live, often more rooted. Um, although it's true, I mean, the whole, the whole population is relatively rooted. I mean, 60% of British people still live within uh, 20 miles of where they lived when they were 14. I mean, we're, we're a somewhat less mobile society than the US, although I think mobility in the US is often exaggerated. Um, but that, the, I think there is a very important role you know, in, the coming, in the coming years for ethnic minorities who are sort of, who are, who are kind of in Britain partly because of anywhere openness, but who are a kind of sort of Trojan horse in some way for, for somewhere values, for somewhere rootedness. Um, and and um, environmentalism is another possible bridge issue. We could perhaps talk about that. Um, I mean, just, just to finish, I mean, I think what... Um, I was, always, I was very impressed a few years ago when I discovered the, the, there's a famous quote from the American sociologist Daniel Bell who talked about being a social democrat in economics, but being American, I think he just meant a, a reg, sort of regulated market economy, a social democratic in economics, a liberal in politics, and somewhat conservative on social and cultural issues. And I think that kind of corresponds to what one might call the kind of hidden majority in, in our societies for all sorts of historical and contingent reasons no party has kind of ever emerged to provide that option. Um, actually, at the last election in Britain, the Conservative Party, I think, sort of tried to, to come close to that, and then for various reasons, uh, although the Conservative Party's share of the vote went up very sharply, uh, Labour did unexpectedly well too, which, kind of, which tarnished the Conservative um, uh, performance. Um, just a very final point. I mean, I think there are, there are places in the world where that get the balance better than, than perhaps we have in, in the Anglo-Saxon societies. Um, uh, Germany is one. I mean, I know we're always looking to Germany as a model. It gets a bit tiresome. But unfortunately, again, the Germans do seem to have got it more right than us in this area in the sense that, well, Germany, it, it doesn't have a London. It doesn't have great global universities, which I think in, in some ways turns out to be an advantage here. They kind of... They kind of the, the, the local and the middling has, has greater value and status in Germany. Lots of great technical institutions. Um, they, they have, of course, their great apprenticeship, apprenticeship system, three-year apprenticeship. So even, even the lowly shop worker does a three-year apprenticeship. It gives people prestige and the, kind of, the, the, kind of the memory of those old sort of guild institutions still lingers on to give status to middling and, and, and lower-skilled jobs. The, the, the whole lender system, the fact that people, even, even in the way they talk in Germany, I don't know if some, some, some of you are perhaps from Germany here, that combination of, you know, if you're out and about in Germany, you speak Hochdeutsch. If, you're, you, know, if you come from a small town in Baden-Württemberg, you know, at home you'll speak some incomprehensible Schwabische dialect. You know, in their, you know, in their very language, they have a kind, of, a kind of settlement in some ways between anyone's and, and somewhere-ness, which, uh, and actually the place in, in the world that I think, uh, it just occurred to me the other day, that kind of most, most represents this, this, this sort of settlement um, between these two value groups is Bavaria. Lederhosen and economic dynamism. I mean, it, it's, it's an extraordinary, it's one of the richest parts of, of Europe. It's also very socially conservative, at least on the surface. 
you know, the, the symbol of lederhosen. I mean, how ridiculous, walking around in those kind of leather trousers. Um, and it's run by this very conservative party, the, the Christian Social Union, one of the most conservative parties in the whole of Europe for, for the last several decades. And yet it has Munich, one of the most liberal and dynamic cities in the whole country. Uh, it's, they've, managed to, they've managed to be genuinely pluralistic, I think, oddly enough. I mean, it has this very conservative image, but the problem with a lot of anywhere liberalism in recent decades is that it's been a kind of illiberal liberalism. It has not allowed, I mean, like in family policy and elsewhere, it has not had enough sensitivity for the, 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 the needs, the economic and the value, the cultural needs of people who are not part of that 20-25% anywhere group. So anyway, let, let me stop there and, um, and let's talk further. Thank you very much. Uh, Walter Russell Mead is going to ask a few, um, have a few comments and a few questions. Um, he's a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute, the James Clark Chance Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College, and editor-at-large of the American Interest, author of God in Gold, Britain, America, and the Making of the Modern World. And his next book is The Ark of the Covenant, United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. This will be published by Knopf this year. Walter? All right. Well, next year, I should say, unfortunately, but uh, for the book publication. Um, well, David, we've known each other for quite a while, and I've, I've admired your work for a long time, and, and, and I think even more with this, this latest book. Um, I thought you had a sentence today that really resonated in America, perhaps more than you know, the phrase, culture trumps economics in the United States, particularly with a capital T on the Trump, <laughs> is, uh, I, I think uh, we, we saw in the uh, paper this morning, I think, that President Trump overruled virtually his entire cabinet in order to uh, impose some tariffs on steel or to, to move in that direction. So culture trumps economics. A lot of what you are talking about seems to me to come down to the question of elite failures or the, you know, the, the, we've created this kind of mass elite with the mass university systems so that in both Britain and the United States, I think many other countries, the, the elite is a lot, is, is a bigger percentage of the population than it used to be but it lacks some of the sense, you called it the paternalism of Downton Abbey. In the book, you refer to the queen as an example of that older elite for whom sort of privilege equals duty and duty to those who don't share your privilege. And I think that's probably what you're referring to. You say why the monarchy is popular as a symbol of this. Of this. The new elite is, I think, less secure than, um, than the old elite in the sense that, you know, Downton Abbey, as long as, as American heiresses keep turning up, um, Downton Abbey will be fine. So you don't have to go out there and sort of squeeze the peasants that hard to keep Downton Abbey going. Uh, but if you're a professional building a career, upper middle class professional, you're actually feeling under a little bit of siege yourself all the time and are more concerned perhaps with getting ahead and making it for yourself than on reflecting on what do you owe other people. 
your your duty is kind of focused on your career to some degree, and the concept then of meritocracy uh, as the opposite of privilege and is justifying. Um, you know, hey, if I'm better than anybody, then I'm entitled to be richer than anybody. And also those people out there who don't make it, well, they're kind of schlubs. And it's sort of the, the character defects, bad choices, low IQ. Heh, who cares? Is that, am I getting this right, that you're, that you're really looking at a kind of elite failure as one of the, the key issues? No, absolutely. I, I, think, I think that is... That is a large part of what I'm talking about, um, and um, a kind of yes, a, a kind of self-regard because uh, not not all anywheres are liberals in the American sense. They're not all sort of on the left. I mean, many anywheres are are, are centre-right mm -hmm. too. Um, uh, but I think there is that what they sort of yeah they do share a. Um, a kind of a, a failure of empathy and imagination in some ways um, that, that perhaps was more associated the, the old class system for all of its for all of its obvious failings um, perhaps required that there was a kind of connection or people have also of course become literally physically disconnected from the middling and poorer people in our society you know they they, they you know at one time the the elites used to employ them. I mean, they had a kind of face to face relationship, yes. which is which is um, partly with the decline of um, of kind of physical production and manufacturing. That relationship um, is no longer there, or you know, in, in, in the armed forces or um, in, in other in other national institutions, the classes and the value groups sort of came together and, and had a had a relationship, often an uneasy one, but they had a relationship um, that has been eroded. Um, and I think we, you know, we, we need a kind of new language to, to think about the domination of, of cognitive elites and, and how we, now, you know, we don't, want to, we don't want to kind of lurch into illiberalism. We don't want to kind of squash the anywheres. The anywheres are still, you know, the most dynamic, um, you know, we're all anywheres, uh, I suspect. I mean, you know, we, we don't want to, to self-harm. Um, it, it's anywheres who are, who are the kind of motors of social change and who are the sources of dynamism, dynamism in our society. So uh, you know, we, we don't want to tip over in the other direction. Um, but we, like I said, we, 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 we require, you know, anywheres have got to do better. You know, I mean, they've, they've got to, and, and, and we've got a chance now. I think, you know, we, we've been warned. You know, we've had these two extraordinary events in 2016, Brexit and Trump. They, they may turn out to be blips and kind of life will go on you know as normal as it were i mean some people are claiming that after the macron victory builders didn't do as well as expected in in the netherlands you know the british election has kind of made brexit a bit fuzzier um but i don't think we should see it like that i think we should quite on the contrary we should see it as a kind of warning sign um that you know we could face even greater forms of of alienation if we don't respond to the to, you know, to the legit, legitimate political signal represented by, by Brexit and Trump. I also thought that part of the critique of the elites that you seem to be making was a, almost a radical anti-democratic sense of meritocracy. That is to say, democratic in the sense of genuinely believing in the equal worth of all people, mm. regardless of IQ or social class or wealth. There's a you know, in, in a religious context, you'd say, 
the equality of all people before God who judges equally and who thinks that the the cleaning lady in your apartment block is as important as you are and mm. and you are accountable for your treatment to her and you'd better respect her. Mm. Um, and that does seem to be a little bit less present in the way that some of the anywheres think of the the somewheres. Yes, I wonder if that is true, that, 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 that a kind of everyday sense of sort of democratic equality has, has weakened in recent time, perhaps partly because of this point about the domination of, of, you know, of cognitive ability becoming the kind of gold standard of social esteem. Um, we've kind of created new forms of, of snobbery in a way. And, and, and actually, um, the, 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 just to reinforce the, the point you made earlier, um, I mean, I, I've never actually seen any research on this. Indeed, I'd quite like to do some myself. Uh, if anybody out there would like to fund it. Um, but I think um, it is my hunch that, um, in Britain anyway, nobody who goes to university, well, actually, nobody who goes to a prestigious university, let's put it like that, um, has, or very few people who go to prestigious universities in Britain have close friends who are not graduates. You know, I think I'll sort of, the, the kind of... <laughs> Bifurcation, not bifurcation, I mean just the kind of divergence of our, of our social networks, reinforced perhaps by, as people often say, by the internet and the kind of the bubble culture of the internet. Um, but I think, and this is again particularly true in Britain because, because of leaving home, you know, leaving home to become an anywhere. Um, it's su such, a, such a, and I, and I saw this, you, you'd see this in the, um, the contempt that uh, people in my email chains after Brexit, you had, um, you know, you had left-wing professors basically saying, why did we give these people the vote? At least without some kind of IQ test, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was, it was sort of astonishing. Uh, and, I, and I don't think if people, perhaps this is less true in America, I think half of all students still live at home uh, in the US. Um, so it may be that, you know, people have a, your kind of high school friends and your college friends can, can, can emerge together in some ways. You don't necessarily have that same break that we tend to have in, in the UK in terms of social networks. But uh, uh, I mean, I, I you know, certainly you know, some of the reactions to Trump were not that dissimilar to what I was describing yep. uh, the left wing professors in Brexit. Well, maybe we should throw yeah. it open yeah, to I the have, audience uh, here. We're going to go to the audience. I have one more. Just, mm. uh, just when you said talk at Parsons. Um, did the name Vilfredo Pareto ever come up, uh, uh, who had this theory of uh, two different types of, uh, that were two different types of characteristics were necessary in the elite, the foxes and the lions. The foxes were very much like um, the anywheres. They were uh, mobile, they were innovative, and so on. But they had negative qualities. They, sometimes they were involved in financial fraud and this like a mm -hmm. Kuwait scandal. Both sides had positive and negative uh, characteristics. The lions were the, and Pareto uses the term group persistence. Right. right. And uh, these were attachment to groups, so uh, the queen, the flag, and so on. But they could be, uh, they had negative qualities. They could be brutal. They could be yeah. uh, opposing. So, but. And Pareto's point was the circulation of elites is what he called it, and you need right. this constant circulation between foxes and lions. And if one, the problem he saw in the 19, uh, right after the First World War, was domination by the foxes was going to lead to you needed more lions. You got them in the 30s. You got them in the 30s. Yeah. You got too many lions. Yeah. And, then, yeah. okay. and then the EU now is almost total foxes. Yeah. 
Oh, no, no, I, I, I didn't know about that. I mean, I, I saw that you mentioned it yeah. in, the, in the review, um, and I, I will definitely look that up. I mean, there are echoes of all sorts of other, I mean, the, the famous Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft yeah, right. distinction, Frederick Tonnies, I think, isn't it? Uh, 19th century German sociologist that, that has some bearing on the on the kind of different ways in which somewheres and anywheres kind of view society. I mean, Gemeinschaft meaning more kind of intimate community, I suppose. Gemeinschaft would be translated into English as community and Gesellschaft as society, the kind of more abstract. Yeah, more transactional. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we can go to the audience. You uh, give your, this is on C-SPAN, you can give your name and uh, affiliation, if you have an affiliation. Name and we'll, have, we'll start with the gentleman in the first row here, the red tie. Uh, Carl Oliver, uh, domain reference, TyndaleToday.com. Actually, one of the greatest gifts to the world England has ever given was uh, that William Tyndale, 1526, translated the truest translation into English of the New Testament the world's ever known. And as we approach the 500th anniversary, maybe the world will rediscover that. But the gentleman's book titled God and Gold, um, we can address the issue of banking and honest money as it affects the stratification of society. Can I start over? <laughs> yeah, if you can come to the, the question quickly. Question. Uh, well, God and Gold. Uh, Biblically, uh, we're admonished against usury, the loaning of money at interest or usury, which has created sort of the stratification of the elites who could enforce contracts that, that you know, created impoverishment or debt by classes that had to pay back principal plus usury. Uh, I wonder, uh, with our central banking, as a retired customs agent investigating money laundering, I've concluded it seems that the too-big-to-prosecute, too-big-to-fail banks are funded through money laundering on a substantial scale tra traceable to drug trafficking. And just to draw this back historically into context. The, the question? Okay, yeah. We got, okay, I think we got God and gold. Okay. We'll let Walter take this. All right. Well, I think, you know, usury is always a problem. It's generally held in Western civilization to be about excessive interest rather than interest at all. Um, but, you know, I, I think in general, levels of financial fraud are problems. Financial transparency is a problem. I wouldn't say right now that big banks that are, that are made large by drug money laundering are, in fact, the dominant factor in our financial system. Okay, this, uh, Stephen, you can stand up here, this gentleman here. Hi, I'm Steve Buckingham, I'm former intern at Hudson Institute. This question is for David Goodhart. Um, it seems that uh, I've been hearing you describe the United States. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with Britain, but just a lot of things you're saying sound like the United States. I think about um, the education bubble that we have here in the United States, which I think like a lot of other bubbles, like the housing bubble, has created economic and cultural uh, turmoil. Um, I think that it seems that uh, maybe part of the problem with the anywheres is uh, that they're not seeing the payoff of the investment in an education. Uh, you know, they were told to go to college, um, and they're inspiring stories like George Soros, who um, went to worked his way through the London School of Economics and then got out, um, dirt poor, selling trinkets on the British seaside, and then eventually made good getting into investment banking. Um, so it seems like maybe the anywheres are getting disillusioned uh, with their own country, with their own system, and they're looking to li more liberal policies. 
um, and the liberal world order, and uh, they're just uh, feeling disconnected with the somewheres who have, uh, like you talk about, made achievements, they've found kind of an identity, they found uh, a way of life, a livelihood. Um, and so uh, it, it just appears that um, uh, perhaps education needs to be revalued. Uh, as a society, we have to revalue education. There's been a lot of discussion in the last uh, election about um, subsidizing education. Uh, candidate Bernie Sanders talked about uh, free college for everyone and eventually... Uh, that's good, Steve. Yeah. Uh, so go ahead. If you have, if you have yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, you've had both Bernie Sanders you know, getting very close to political power in the U.S. You've had uh, Jeremy Corbyn doing the same thing in Britain. And one of their big appeals has been the, um, the, the, the dissolution of student tuition fees. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was actually promising not only to abolish student tuition fees, but to repay people that had already paid back their tuition fees. I mean, it was an extraordinary, you know, this is just writing a massive check to the middle and upper middle class in Britain, which overwhelmingly dominate higher education, as, as is no doubt the case here too. Um, indeed, in the same manifesto that he was proposing that, he was also pr proposing not to unfreeze welfare benefits for the poor. I mean, this is Jeremy Corbyn, the supposed extreme leftist. I mean, actually, I think by kind of chance as much as design, I mean, the Labour put together a very kind of pragmatic and appealing manifesto um, to lots of, lots of different groups. Um, but nonetheless, I think, I think, you know, I think the, you know, our political classes will probably, you know, will, will have noticed the enormous popularity of this, uh, of the policy of abolishing tuition fees. I think it's a, it's an, clearly an economically regressive policy. Um, um, although, I, I mean, I, I mean, I think um, yeah, it is one of the, uh, because it's happened so relatively recently and quickly in the UK. I mean, the, 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 the kind of cultural and political power of higher education is a, is a very understudied subject. And it, uh, indeed, uh, we were just talking earlier about this. The, um, the, this last election in Britain um, sort of brought it to the surface for the first time. Um, we talked about, you know, the university. We, we've always talked about university seats. We used to just mean Oxford and Cambridge. Now about 20% perhaps of the, of the seats in the British Parliament have a substantial element, not, not only of students and staff from universities, but also lots of generally speaking, liberal-minded graduates who sort of stay in certain, certain towns and, and parts of towns, you know, Bristol West, Manchester Withenshaw, Brighton. I mean, there are kind of places in Britain that are, you might say they're the kind of anywhere-somewhere places. They're, they're where anywheres go to kind of establish new routes. You know, that, you know anywheres generally don't, you know, they're, they're not from, you know, they, they leave home, but they find they find uh, they, they become kind of rooted and established. And of course, anywheres have, have as much um, group think as somewheres. Um, often they're, they're better educated in somewhere so they can rationalize their own group think uh, more, more effectively. But um, I think the, the whole, I mean, the massification of higher education, I mean, I, 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 my, um, my one joke about this is that I, I sometimes um, Say you know, uh, you know, explaining Brexit. I say, well, I, I blame the masses for Brexit. <laughs> mass immigration and mass higher education have produced Brexit. The two masses. Um, okay, the right over here, lady, the white jacket. Hello. 
Uh, thanks very much for coming. It's very, very enlightening. My name is Cynthia Butler. I'm an attorney in town. Um, I've worked on a number of political campaigns. Um, my, my question is, what, what in the elite or the anywhere, as you're calling, um, is there in, in the nature of sort of sacred policy cows that we have here? Sort of, I mean, we've got things that, that the elites have wed themselves to that I believe the last election proved to be um, completely objectionable to you know, large segments of religious people, for example. I mean, I would say our elite sacred cows are things like Planned Parenthood, abortion, and, um, you know, free immigration, you know. You know, we, we have sort of things that, that, that people of an educated status would, would say are non-negotiables. So, so what in the British, uh, you know, value scheme, do do they wed themselves to in the nature of sacred cows that have been mm. policy-wise rejected? Mm. Yeah, good, good, good question. I mean, I, I would, not that dissimilar to here. I mean, you know, immigration would certainly be one of the issues that's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of emblem. Um, uh, I mean, we don't, we don't have immigration, well, we have had immigration that has become much more open um, you know, historically, we haven't thought of ourselves as an immigration country, but certainly uh, we've, we've had two great waves. We had the post-colonial wave starting in the late 40s, sort of tapering down a bit in the 80s and 90s, and then a new surge when Tony Blair was elected in 97, uh, and then a new new surge after 2004 when, when the, um, a lot of people from the former communist countries that had just joined the European Union uh, came to the UK. And so we've, by historical standards, we've had unprecedented levels in recent years, and that has become one of the central dividing lines um, um, in, 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 this, in this argument. And indeed, it's become a kind of emblem of, of I think, it's sort of social change more generally. Uh, the, you know, the idea that social change, novelty, um, these, are, these are sort of good things, and, that, and, th and this requires a very large amount of openness in your society, uh, and a, a very large amount of fluidity. Um, which, is, which, as I said right at the beginning, it's, this is something that anywheres find, find not only comfortable but desirable and look down upon somewheres for their inability to, to, uh, to, to, to kind of handle and, and, and ride change. Um, but, um, yes, I mean, the, 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 what are the, the, the other kind of liberal mainstream ideas? Well, I mean, membership of the European Union was one of them too. You know, the, the European Union seemed to sort of crystallize that, that, that modern European um, openness. But of course it did so at the, at the, kind of, at, at the price of reducing the democratic voice. Um, now, you know, as I was saying, I mean, a lot of somewheres have, have kind of stopped voting in the elections because they felt, you know, so many of the things that kind of affected their lives um, were, um, were imposed from the outside without any... any I think one of the key differences here, actually, is, the, the, you know, the way in which, um, uh, you know, in, in trade negotiations, you know, global, you know, all, all of these kinds of global negotiations, you know, anywheres, the kind of starting assumption of anywheres is that um, some, sort of, some sort of deal to further open up trade in goods, services, and so on, uh, and indeed movement of people, you know, must, sort of must inherently be a good thing, and that, 
um, and that we have to come together. This is more of a European argument. We have to come together in Europe to kind of negotiate and to, to pre protect ourselves from, uh, you know, from the kind of global bond markets. Um, and um, but but I think to non-elites, so you know, elites even the, even in my larger definition of elites, you know, the top sort of 15, 20 percent of the population, sort of. They understand that, they kind of see the rationality of it, it often benefits them. Um, but the, to the non-elites, you know, the, the cure is, is worse than the disease, or it's the same as the disease. I mean, you know, I'm bossed around by Brussels or the global bond markets, it doesn't really make a heap of a difference to me. Um, so, uh, I mean, what, what religious issues play somewhat less of a role, I think, in, in, in UK politics. Um, uh, Minority integration is probably another one of those sort of touchstone issues too. I mean, in terms of sort of caring about it, like I say, somewheres are more easily disturbed. I think by um, by the feeling that you know their their town has changed a lot. You know, there are whole neighbourhoods that where people different to them live, and they they, they feel a bit anxious about it. And um, you know, there will be schools that are entirely minority dominated, um, and to, to, to um, anyway, as we'll think, well, that's fine. That's the modern world. You know, of course, people will cluster together. Um, that's, um, but the, that because they have kind of less of a sense of uh, of a kind of, you know, you might say an ethnic identity themselves. The anyways have less of a sort of sense of a of common norms and a common way of life. So they're they're less disturbed by um, by the by the consequences of large-scale immigration. Let me sharpen that point just mm. a little bit, and this is on immigration, and um, just bring that out a little bit. What struck me very, uh, when um, Fred Siegel writing in City Journal said, well, this, this guy's rather courageous. Uh, I was thinking of one of your comments in the book, which would you would get tremendous pushback here from any American anywhere, where you said, that you're talking about social cohesion and integration immigration and the assimilation of immigrants. And you said it would be easier, essentially, to assimilate 100,000 Australians as opposed to 100,000 Afghans. So that you'd get tremendous pushback here from that kind of really? thing. I, I, so this is a difference, I guess, between the anywheres and, and the somewhere attitudes. And I, Frank, I, I think it makes a certain amount of sense what you're saying, but it's a question of social cohesion. Uh, so it may be the different types of societies that people come from do make a difference. Mm. Uh, the anywheres apparently would say, how dare you even bring this up? Uh, the somewheres would say, well, this is common sense. We had the situation with Gordon Brown and the mm. Mm. woman a couple years back. So woman. I'm, trying, I'm giving you a chance to yeah. uh, think about this a little bit. But, well, actually, uh, that's a really good point. Um, and actually, it, it, what it underlines is this... Um, is, 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 is a, again, it's a return to this different attitude to groups and group attachments and group identities. And the uh, liberals, you know, the, the left, tend to, they tend to be groupist when it comes to economics. They still sort of believe in social class. And, but when it comes to culture and society, the left, at least in, in Britain and much of Europe, becomes, becomes highly individualistic. It's, a kind of, you know, society is just a random collection of individuals. You know, we're all just individuals, aren't we? So what difference can it possibly make to have a kind of another hundred thousand people from Eritrea? Um, but but somewheres don't see it like that. You know they see society as a kind of home, not a shop. Um, and um, 
as I said, there's this radically sort of different view of society, depending on whether you're looking at it through an economic lens or a cultural lens. Like I said, the left, groupist in economics, individualist, you know, they're, they're almost saying there is no such thing as society when it comes to peoples, as it were, and how, and how easy or difficult, you know, peoples and cultures and ethnicities and all that kind of stuff. And hence, they can genuinely believe what, you know, anybody knows that obviously it's easier to integrate 100,000 Australians than, than 100,000 Afghans. I mean, just the language, you know, you know culture, way of life uh, are immediately shared in certain respects um, with Australians in a way they're not with Afghans. I mean, 100,000 Afghans can assimilate, but obviously it's common sense that it will take longer and it will be a, 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 it will be a more friction-filled and difficult process. Um, gentleman right here. Yes, I'm uh, Brian Marshall. I'm uh, semi-retired at this time. Um, <clears throat> among British values, I would think there'd be a strong concern about the fact that the country was governed, has been governed for a significant period now by the EU Parliament, and much of the legislation uh, coming from outside the country. And uh, to a <clears throat> considerable extent, I would think that would be a major problem in the United States. And but I have not heard very much about uh, that being a concern in Britain. Is that the case? Uh, it seems like uh, most of the discussion has been relating to immigration. <clears throat> um, no, I mean, it, it has been. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there has long been a, a substantial minority of people who have objected very strongly to the erosion of sovereignty represented by the European Union. Um, you know, we, we, have, we have willingly given up um, powers to, to this body, I mean, in the same way that we do with other global, you know, the same way that we do with NATO. Um, but, um, I mean, what's happened, particularly since um, the 1980s and the 1990s, and the European Union has been a remarkable success story in many ways. Uh, I mean, I think it took various wrong paths in the 1990s, its success kind of went to its head, particularly with the end of the Cold War. I think it, in the Jacques Delors um, period in, in Brussels, um, it, it rushed ahead with a, with, a, um, with a political rather than economic euro. It introduced this concept of European citizenship, which, which subsequently made, made it so difficult to, to control freedom of movement. Not only did we, did we have large numbers of people coming, but when they arrived, they had to be treated in exactly the same way as British citizens, which offended against a kind of common sense notion that most Americans ha would have, most British people would have, indeed most Germans, Spaniards, Slovakians have, of fellow citizen favoritism, the idea that you know, national citizens should be kind of first in a queue for, for, for public goods of various kinds in most circumstances anyway. Um, and that, um, um, you've also had the over-rapid enlargement of the European Union. I mean, it, it turns out, ironically, that we are leaving the European Union, because of enlargement, we were the country that promoted enlargement more than any other, because we thought it would dilute the kind of integrating force in the European Union. Um, but now, as you say, large, I mean, substantially because of the, the immigration. And, and I think the, the role of Parliament is very important here um, in the immigration story. Post-colonial immigration, as I mentioned earlier, um, Quite a few people came from the late 40s to the, to the 80s, 90s, people from the former colonies in Caribbean, Africa, um, India and Pakistan, 
Um, and there was some friction, but you know, gradually we, you know, Britain became used to being a multi-ethnic, multiracial society. Um, but in the 80s, 90s, you know, politicians, governments, parliament was able to respond to the anxieties people felt about it and br bring the numbers down. So by the early 90s, net immigration into Britain was actually negative. You know, more people were leaving than, than were coming. And, and, and I think that, you know, that, was a, that was a proper response to, uh, you know, made it easier to absorb the newcomers when the numbers were relatively low. Um, when after 2004, when we had the, the, the great surge from Eastern Europe, people suddenly realized that our parliament could do nothing about it because this was part of the a set of rules that we'd signed up to uh, as part of the European Union. It hadn't been a big deal before 2004 because you know, people don't on the whole move between countries of similar levels of economic development. But suddenly, a whole lot of poorer countries joined. We were the only big country to allow immediate access to our labor market, so we were sort of particularly strongly hit by a, by, by a big wave of people. Uh, and people realized that the part, there's something as basic and existential as you know, who comes into your country and in what quantity, was we were unable to affect, and I think that that and it, and, it, and and this is true across a whole range of other issues too. I mean, the, like I say, the the cure is so often worse than the disease. You know, you the whole point about countries is that they have different kind of national preferences on things. You know, you have different national preferences, different choices you make on on your attitude to risk, say, you know, whether it's financial products or GM crops or, you know, Brits and Americans disagree about these things. And we have, we have different countries. It's okay to disagree about these things. But when you join a club, um, and this actually applies to some extent to, to even to the WTO, when you join a club like the European Union, suddenly all these national preferences are, are harder to impose. You know, you, have, you come to some sort of messy compromise and your national preference. Now, it may be worth doing that, if the reward is big enough, you know, if you really are all getting richer and, and, it, and it works, but there was a feeling with the European Union that we were sacrificing national sovereignty and not getting enough back in return. Okay, there were the fourth row, there's two women here. Uh, yeah, you're, you start and then over here. There's the guy, he's been waiting patiently. Hi, my name is Farron Brown, I'm a student from London, England. Um, my question is, how much so would you argue that political language and our media has more of a say in our electorate's vote and political participation than background political context and identity. The, the media plays a bigger role than... than our electorate's participation than background political identity and context. Oh, well, um, I, I mean, I think the media has... Uh, the media plays a very interesting role in in this argument, uh, and 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 it's and it's possibly sort of part of the part of the solution. Um, I mean, we've had a very we've had a narrowing of our political culture, probably here too, um, in the last in the last two or three generations. You know, the sociological background of MPs, you know, has, has, has tended to become more and more similar. There's you know a, a much more political political class, as it were. You know, people who've worked as interns and special advisors who, who then go on to become congressmen, senators, and so on. Um, uh, so you, you've, and, and you've seen, as I, as I was saying in my talk, you've, you've seen a narrowing of the, of the kind of political ideology too. The double liberalism has been so dominant in both of our countries in a way that, um, um, and yet there's a big countervailing factor to that now, which is the internet 
which is the you know the kind of the somewhere trolls are somehow you know are now released. Their you know the the kind of elite filters on political communication have been completely blown away, uh, and it's very ugly a lot of the time. You know, your own president. Um, um, it's it's kind of messy, but it is it is giving a voice to people who didn't have a voice before in some ways, or felt they didn't have a voice. Um, and you know, I think it's too early to tell quite how that how that that media revolution, um, very um, you know, the sort of pop, populist democratic media revolution, um, is going is going to play out. Uh, and I, I think in some ways, you know, one one could see this as a kind of optimistic. Development um, and you know and you know like I say I mean you know in the short term it certainly kind of made the tone of politics uglier um, but but people you know it's, it's a bit like populist parties in Europe have many populist parties in Europe have been uh, have been in governments you know as, as minority minorities and coalitions and on the whole it's kind of civilized them um, not in all cases but I mean you know the the, the Finns party in, in Finland, for example, I mean, it's 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 had to compromise in government as as, as one of the coalition parties in the government. It's lost a, lost a lot of public support as a result of that. But they've kind of learned that politics is about difficult trade-offs, and you can't just have simple populist slogans that um, that that are that are an answer to everything. Um, when you're faced with real responsibilities, you you change your behaviour, and and that's been I think that's been a civilising influence on European populism in a way. And you might say the same thing about about the kind of new media opening, the fact that everybody can everybody can be a publisher, everybody can have their own newspaper, you know, anyone can set up a blog or tweet or uh, or say things on Facebook and that, that lots of other people might listen to. Uh, that democratization of the means of, of communication. Um, we're, we're in the because we're in the early stages of it, it's kind of messy and ugly, but I think you know it may you may see, you know, the, the trolls becoming, you know, responsible people like, like, like uh, my my colleagues on the platform here. Uh, it will add uh, to role uh, model for trolls. Yeah. I never yes, go it. ahead. Thank you, David. <laughs> two two uh, houses down, two, each town. Right. Uh, my name is Mim Pomerantz, and I'm a student at the St Albans School of Public Service. I was just wondering something that I've noticed in the United States, I'm not sure if the same is true for Britain, that recently we've seen a lot of, I guess what you'd call the anywheres, um, or certain groups of anywheres, um, kind of using anti-intellectualism or anti-expert um, sentiments as kind of a scapegoat, scapegoat and um, harnessing that to kind of gain populist influence. Um, you mentioned in your talk that there are certain bridges that we might be able to use to um, find compromise between the value systems. And I was wondering if you thought that um, we could ever kind of reconcile that anti-intellectualist um, sentiment. Mm. Did, did you mean that they're using, who's using the anti-intellectual sentiment? That's That was my, I didn't quite understand that. How, how do you see that? Um, for example, with the past election, um, I guess we'd all consider, say, President Trump um, as an anywhere, but I think he was very successful in kind of harnessing um, the populist sentiment. I guess that's more what I was referring to. Um, well, uh, there was a famous statement during the Brexit campaign by Michael Gove, a leading British politician, who said that people are fed up with experts. 
um, and he, you know, he said that sympathetically. And I, I think what he meant was that, um, I mean, obviously we're not fed up with experts who, you know, remove tumours from our brains or, you know, keep the aeroplanes flying or, um, you know, engineers and hard scientists. But, I mean, the, but the media is dominated by people who are not hard scientists, people who are, who are um, you know, journalists or commentators or, um, you know, academics in, in political science or whatever. And they, um, they are not neutral. Invariably, they have agendas. Um, they, they have lots of facts and figures at their, uh, at their fingertips, but they are not neutral. But I think it's also true that what, what we're seeing is a kind, you know, we've seen in the last generation or two the kind of final eradication of the kind of politics of deference um, in, in our societies. Perhaps it, was, perhaps it disappeared in America a long time ago, but, but in Britain, you know, you, you only have to go back a few decades and there was a, um, there was more, there was more kind of structure and deference in, in politics. Um, and, um, and I think that the, the erosion of that is in some ways a, a good thing. Um, you know, deference is, is, is not on, on the whole a, a, a valuable um, sentiment, at least in a, in a democracy. A democracy should be non-deferential in many ways. Um, but I think the, I think that non-deferential spirit has kind of, has got a bit too rampant in a way. It's sort of, it's sort of spilled over into, uh, into, um, into finding it, you know, any kind of, um, um, any kind of, author any form of authority, uh, any kind of intellectual authority, any kind of, you know, just because somebody has, you know, studied a subject for ten years, well, I don't care. I feel differently about it. You know, and, and the and the and the much greater importance that people attach to to sentiment and feeling and emotion, um, again, you know, perhaps reinforced by the internet revolution in many ways. You know, my feelings are that I am right and you, you're wrong, even if you have a long list of letters after your name. Um, and that, you know, I, mean, I think obviously that can go too far. I mean, the person with a long list of letters after their name, even allowing for the fact that they have their own biases, may actually simply know more about whatever the, whatever the issue is. Well, the last question also referred to a very common phenomenon, which is that... Uh, a wealthy person who is the leader of a populist cause. We can think of Franklin Roosevelt. We can, in fact, go back to Julius Caesar. So this has been mm -hmm. throughout history. Mm -hmm. uh, the gentleman way in the last row right here. Uh, James saying retired. Uh, David, you mentioned that Germany, quote, I think said had no great universities, the great technical institutions. I have friends who teach at TU Munich and ETH Aachen, and they tell me, and I think they're right, they teach at great universities. So what are we missing? Mm. Yeah, uh, they have great technical universities. They do not have great global universities. Uh, you know, you just look at the look at the the, the lists that are produced by organisations. The, the global university list is dominated by the U.S. and and no, I said you, Germany has great technical universities, um, um, but it doesn't have great sort of general global universities. Yes, yeah, yes, of course they are. I mean, uh, I said with the exception of technical universities, um, but the more the broader-based, you know, general universities, as it were, as it were, doesn't really exist in in you know in places like Heidelberg does not attract you know huge huge flows of international students. Which it uh, did, or it used to, yeah, in the twentieth, right, or in the nineteenth yeah, century, yeah. right? No, the, I mean Germany right. did once lead these generals. Exactly. Now it doesn't, and it's actually a deliberate model of policy. The government 
doesn't stream larger amounts of money so that it doesn't have an Oxford and a Cambridge or a Harvard and a Yale. Yeah, and elite children in Germany generally go abroad. They come here or they go to Britain uh, for, their, for their higher education. Uh, okay, this gentleman and then you after that. Hi, my name is Joe Patrick. I'm a student at the School of Public Service. So it seems that we're seeing a global trend in the rise of big men, be it uh, President Duterte in the Philippines, President Trump here, type Erdogan. So how do you feel that the growing chasm between the anywheres and the somewheres is relating to this rise in big men? I would say that, you know, there is an impatience Mm-hmm. People are impatient of being governed by institutions, and by, um, and they want to be governed by people. They want some. They want to face on power. You can even see that I think in China, where after the death of Mao, they tried deliberately to move away from a personalistic system. But I think the the threat that Bo Xilai was able to raise scared them, and you see Xi Jinping. Is, is behaving much more like an emperor than like the chairman of a committee. Um, and this is, I think, um, it's partly a result of the kind of disintermediation through the Internet of, of institutions and politics. Right? One other point to make here about the relationship of elites and non-elites is that non-elites these days feel a heck of a lot better and are a lot better educated than non-elites used to be. So that in 1920, the average school leaving age in the U.S. might have been eighth grade, uh, 15 years old. Today, you have many more people going through many more levels of education. And they simply, and, and even in the U.S., many people going through two years of post-secondary education who don't go all the way through, they don't actually feel they need upper-middle-class professionals to tell them how to do X and Y and Z, they kind of think they know already. And you also had earlier in the 20th century with many people migrating from rural areas to urban areas to live. Again, the urban area was unfamiliar. It was not what you grew up with. And you look to the public school teacher, you look to the professionals to tell you how to behave in this new environment. You're now at home uh, in this, and yet these people, if anything, they are bossier than ever. Mm. They have new ideas about child raising, new things about Mm. car seats, or or they're always coming up with new ways Mm. to tell you how to live better. Represented by Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I think so, and and so people, you know, there's there's a pushback on that. Mm. We got time for two quick questions here, and then, then Yeah, well, he's next. He's the last one. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, David, um, you made an interesting point. Um, Would you give your name? And- sure. My, my name is Jeff Krasny. Um, I work for an investment company. Um, you made an interesting point, at least to me, with respect to experience. And you said that um, there's a distinct difference between an individual with experience and then a person that literally can create an idea in 15 minutes or so. And it, it 
somehow my analogy is sort of the self-made man was viewed as uh, a mythology in some respects, um, given a lot of credit versus take the, the, the Dow Jones here in, in the United States in some respects where now, you know, um, there are very, very few companies that are on the Dow Jones that are 20 years old or so. So that type of experience sort of is gone. Um, if you can relate that, that the, the type of experience versus the, the instant, as, as um, Walter said here, with respect to the instant expertise that one can have just by getting 15 minutes on the internet. Yeah. Um... I mean, yeah, well, <clears throat> when I was talking about experience, I, I, I was in a way talking more about status and the, 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 those kinds of jobs that required a lot of experience to do well and not necessarily, you didn't have to be very smart to do the job, but a smart person coming off the street couldn't easily do it. And I think, um, I think the disappearance of those jobs has helped to drain away status and respect and recognition and you might even say sort of social honour, rather an old-fashioned phrase, social honour from a lot of occupations. Um, and, yeah, and what you say is kind of analogous to that, perhaps in some ways, you know, the kind of the smart, geeky kids have produced all these you know, massive digital companies. Um, and, um, you know, that, that is a sort of um, um, analogy... In the um, in the Dow Jones uh, and, and indeed in the industrial structure, um, and I mean how they will how they will sort of settle down. I mean obviously they, they, there are certain there are probably certain jobs in in Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, um, Google that, that that are also protected like that. I don't really know enough about that world, um, but. Um, Yes, I, I think that you know it's part of that. The, the general shift to, to admiring and esteeming cognitive ability before other qualities. I mean, it's that those other qualities um, that we need to sustain still. You know, character, moral standing, experience um, are are things that everybody can sort of play that game. The trouble is with cognitive ability, you know, 50% of the population are always in the bottom half of the cognitive ability spectrum. Um, you know, and you, you, it's kind of, um, you know, in some ways inherently unmeritocratic to stress um, cognitive ability above all other things. Well, that was the last question, this gentleman here. Ryan Halley, Stonehurst Group. David, how do you explain why neither Scotland nor Ireland have any interest in joining England in Brexit? Um... It was a um, an, an Anglo-Welsh um, vote, it is true. Uh, the Welsh voted, um, um, uh, and uh, people talk about it as being a kind of uh, English revolt, uh, a kind of revolt of the English somewhere, perhaps the, the last great act of the English working class, from Chartism to Brexit. Um, and there is some truth in that, I think. Um, partly because there is a kind of legitimate resentment, to add to all the other resentments, if you like, um, about the kind of downplaying of the English interest um, uh, in, in the new arrangements that have emerged in the last couple of decades, the, you know, the much greater voice for Scotland, the Scottish Parliament, same in Wales. Um, 
and the feeling that the that the English uh, subsidise these places and don't have their own voice. Now, the problem is it's very difficult because there's such a sort of asymmetry. You know, the English population is 55 million, the Scottish population is, is 8 million, Welsh population is 3 million. I think, you know, the, you know, we are the kind of, you know, the big bear in the bed. And, you know, when, when we roll over, everyone else gets squashed. So there's, um, there's a kind of necessary element of sort of self-restraint. But that kind of self-restraint is not popular in a more populist age. And the English have been kind of slightly rebelling against it. Uh, but I would say, um, uh, don't forget, 40%, nearly 40% of people in Scotland voted to leave. I mean, it's, this is not kind of an overwhelming voice. <coughs> Similarly, 40% of people in London uh, voted to leave. You know, these, these two great... In fact, all of the, all of the places that, that, the places that, were, that, were, that, were, that were most leave-voting areas, like the West Midlands, I think, and the northeast of England, also had very large remain votes and, 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 and vice versa. So everywhere was pretty mixed actually. Um, and yeah, there, there, there was a, there was a, there was a bias in Scotland, um, uh, as in London. Um, uh, and, and there might be, uh, you know, and, and there's an element of, um, of not, not exactly anti-Englishness, but you know, given that Scotland has been run by the Scottish National Party. It is a nationalist party. It has been trying to leave the United Kingdom. Um, it, there, is a, there is a feeling that, um, uh, odd though it might sound, um, that they would prefer to be kind of ruled by Brussels than by London, um, you know, partly because of historic resentments and, um, and, and being the kind of little guy in, in, in the context of the United Kingdom. Um, but I think the last election has shown that there is no appetite now for a, for a second referendum in Scotland. Um, the Conservative Party did much better than expected in Scotland. P people are beginning to tire of the SNP. And, and also, the fact is, it is much harder for Scotland to be independent um, when Britain is outside the European Union. If we were both inside the European Union, um, it, it, it would have been very much easier for Scotland. I think the, the, the costs, economic and otherwise, um, um, rise really quite dramatically. So I don't, I don't expect there to be a, a second referendum anytime soon. Following England has never really been an Irish goal. <laughs> one explanation. Well, one, one reason they yeah, I mean, the euro right away. Yeah, I mean, Ireland... You know, you know, obviously Ireland is an independent country and, and um, you know, decided to get out of the bed entirely rather than risk being squashed by the big English bear. Um, and, uh, and a lot of Irish commentators sort of complain about the, the um, you know, the kind of irresponsible way in which the, you know, the English or the Anglo-Welsh have kind of uh, are now jeopardized, possibly jeopardizing the Good Friday Agreement and the open border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Um, I mean, you know, I, but I think it's pretty unrealistic to expect English voters um, to place, you know, 55 million English voters. Are you really saying 55 million English voters should put an, an anxiety about a complicated border situation in Ireland, which most of them don't understand anyway, before their kind of fundamental desire for a return to national sovereignty? I think, I think, I think that's your. You're judging the English by unfair standards, I think, if you are, you, if you are saying that. You're judging them by a standard that we don't apply to anybody else, 
we certainly, we certainly don't apply it to the smaller nations of the United Kingdom and Ireland. Um, I mean, I think if there is goodwill, you know, a way round will be found to, I mean, it may be that the people of Northern Ireland will have to have some sort of, um, some sort of um, passport or, or border checks when they come to the mainland, and that will be unpopular in Northern Ireland. Uh, I mean, perhaps, perhaps the Irish government, if they worry about it so much, can, um, you know, we can have, we can have, you know, British customs officials working with Irish customs officials uh, on, on the Irish border. Um, to, to to resolve the problem or some sort of combination of the two things, because um, I say uh, I, I think I think it's sort of unfair to expect the the English to suppress their interests. Last comment. I understand. I don't mean to be rude, but if I may, you have said nothing also about the differences between Irish culture, Scottish culture, Irish education, Scottish education, with the English experience and how that broader argument fits in with your general positions on, the, on Brexit. Um, there are many arguments we haven't had time yeah, to make exactly. and many subjects we haven't addressed, and I well, thank think you it may need to remain that okay. way. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right.